You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome to the UI podcast. It is today the 25th of March and we will delve into the EU's role in the coronavirus crisis and that we're all uh, in the middle and epicenter of at the moment. My name is Ylva Pettersson. Uh, I work with the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and I have invited my colleague Mark Reinhardt, who is a senior researcher with our institute and professor at the Department of Economic History and International Relations at the Stockholm University. Mark has been studying the EU as a crisis manager and uh, the development of the EU in the area of civil protection for a long time. Uh, we are going to uh, look into the role that the different EU institutions place when it comes to the corona pandemic. We are going to uh, get into where the EU can have a, an important role to play and uh, whether the EU has learned to, uh, how to better respond to crises from previous um, experiences. So Mark, I'm going to ask you straight away, uh, what is the EU's role in managing or coordinating the, this public health crisis? The EU role is actually fairly small uh, as the crisis unfolds. I think there's a lot of people who think that the EU should somehow be on the front line or that they are failing in, in, in making sure member states uh, march lockstep with one another. The reality is in the area of public health, the EU's role is quite small. Um, but of course, that doesn't stop people from pointing fingers at the EU, but that's another question. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what the different institutions do? Absolutely. I and mean, when I say that the EU's role in public health is relatively small, that's meaning that their legal competence given to them in the EU treaties by member states uh, is, a, is formally very low, but they're involved in lots of different kinds of activities which relate to public health. So, for example, they share information about, even in a pandemic, you know, what, a, what are the latest outbreaks, what do the numbers look like, uh, who's suffering the most. They try to help member states, who are often swamped with too much information, try to sift through that information and, and, and develop a European-wide situation awareness of what's happening. So the EU is helping member states um, on the technical front. So they're sharing information. Um, they also, the European Commission, for instance, has a mechanism called the Civil Protection Mechanism, which allows member states to share supplies and resources that are useful in a crisis, whether that crisis be a forest fire or, or a pandemic or a terrorist attack. In this case, um, and in all cases in fact, member states can ask the European Commission to then ask all member states for help, whether it's masks or whether it's ready to eat meals or whether it's different kinds of equipment that would be very useful for, for a pandemic. Um, so there's, there's early warning, there's situation awareness, and there's um, civil protection equipment sharing which takes place, um, that's through the European Commission. The Council of Ministers and the European Council, where member states and heads of state and government sit, they have mechanisms that have to do with coordination and decision-making in crises and, uh, and the pandemic right now. So for example, the Council is meeting on a very regular basis to um, think about how they can coordinate their, their various actions on the pandemic. Um, the European Parliament at the moment, not too involved. Some of the agencies are very involved. So the European Center for Disease Control here in Solna, Sweden, is, um, 
is really doing their best to collect information and, and get a grip on the, the, the technical uh, data that's, and, and to share that with member states to help them make better decisions. Of course, so these institutions play different roles, they're different tools. In the heat of a crisis, you can imagine that national governments are focused primarily on their own territories and taking care of their own people. And to an extent, that's natural. You would want a government to do that in the heat of a crisis. Brussels is not there to lead a crisis response. It is there to support it, though. And what we're seeing as the days pass here is member states realizing that you know, a degree of coordination is more and more important. So in the early days, there wasn't a lot of role for the EU. Uh, now member states are realizing that, yeah, let's, we should talk more in, uh, together about what, e what each other's doing. Heads of state are meeting by teleconference. Uh, health ministers are meeting daily. Um, so they're at least they're sharing information now because they realize that you know, some degree of coordination in the medium to longer term is going to be essential to combating this crisis. What actions the U.S. taken? It's mostly what actions has the Commission been taking so far? That's right. That's right. I mean, the Commission, you know, as the largest organization in Brussels, the largest institution, um, largest bureaucracy, has most of the resources. They have money they can spend. They have supplies that they can redirect. Uh, they have informational resources as well they can share with member states. They have something called the European Response Coordination Center, which is this you know, very uh, state-of-the-art crisis management control room with lots of different TVs and information sources, and they can use that to monitor what's happening. And if member states want that, then they can ask for access to that, and they can ask for assistance there. Um, I brought up the question of money. The Commission indeed has all the money. One of the interesting things that Brussels is doing at the moment has to do with the secondary effects of the crisis. So you have the pandemic, you have the control, you're stopping the spread. That's first and foremost. But we all know that there are some fallout effects coming. There's going to be a major economic crisis. There's possibly going to be social disruption. And I think to the EU's credit, they're, they're starting to look at those problems and thinking about what resources will be required there. So for example, the Commission is loosening the supply of money to the regions of Europe to allow them a little more flexibility to direct money that perhaps would have been focused on building a new bridge in southern Italy to instead be put on social services in Italian communities. So the Commission is, is solving this problem, or not solving, but it's responding to the problem, helping with the problem, I should say, helping member states by making you know, cash available. Uh, making it easier for states to spend money. They've also relaxed their state aid restrictions, which normally say states can't you know, plow money into their airlines, they can't subsidize uh, national industries because it's a violation of the internal market. Now they're saying, you know what, in these times, let's let those go for a bit. Let's let countries do what they want and pump money into the economy to help keep the economy afloat. So. It's interesting to see that Brussels is also thinking about the, the cascading effects of this potential crisis and the knock-on effects and, and what kinds of common tools are available for them to use for those. Something that has been mentioned is the um, civil protection mechanism that you mentioned, mm -hmm. that Italy uh, asked for help uh, from other member states uh, in the outbreak of this uh, pandemic in Italy, but they, nobody replied. Mm -hmm. Is that the EU's fault or how... How does that work? Yeah. Well, in that particular case, so Italy asked the European Commission Civil Protection Mechanism, as you, as you put it, as you said. 
uh, for help. And then the mechanism is supposed to then send out a call to all member states, please help your fellow member state. Well, nobody answered the call. In fact, several of them uh, implemented export controls so that masks and ventilators couldn't leave national boundaries, which is you know, really concerning uh, in some people's eyes. Uh, that has since changed. I think that member states, again, have come to realize now that the initial shock of the crisis has faded a bit, and of course it's still very serious, but there's a little bit more time for reflection, that they need to be helping each other out. This is a crisis which hits everybody symmetrically. Everyone's hit at exactly the same time. It's no point hoarding supplies in one part of Europe because even if you manage to solve the problem in your corner of Europe, it's going to come back if other corners of Europe are not assisted and helped. So the civil protection mechanism uh, is you know, up and running. It's being used. Um, I think when we talk about Europe, and you and I have talked about this before here at the Institute, you, know, you have to distinguish between member states of the EU who help each other or not bilaterally, and then you have to talk about the EU institutions in Brussels, which have an additional set of mechanisms to help with cooperation. They are doing, you know, both are taking place. So on the bilateral help, it, it, you know, it was um, yesterday, just yesterday, Germany announced that they would be helping Italian um, uh, citizens who were ill with corona in parts of Germany which had a little bit of excess capacity in their hospitals to help with, Ital with uh, Italian hospitals which were overwhelmed. So, you know, for every kind of negative anecdote of what's happening in Brussels, you have some positive anecdotes. And it's a mixture of what states are doing to help each other or not, and what's happening in Brussels, at the Brussels level, to help member states or not. So it's a bit of a complicated question as to what is the EU doing, what is the role. It depends on what level you're talking about. So what I'm hearing is that the, for the um, uh, primary effects or like the acute phase, then the cooperation has to go, it, it, it falls down to mem like member state to member state. How can we help each other? But for the secondary effects, or when you think about it long term, this is where the EU and the EU uh, institutions come into play, where the, with the money and mm. uh, the the means of like doing changing legislation or yeah in other ways. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think in some state, in some respects, nations are like people. When there's a crisis, we tend to bunker down, take care of ourselves first in the initial onslaught of a, of, a, of a tragedy or a crisis. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Um, and member states are handling the crisis. And they are legally responsible for handling this crisis, of course. That's their job, is to handle crisis in the first instance. Um, in Europe, in some respects, we're lucky enough to be able to say that there is a secondary level of support, which is collective in orientation. And yes, that, that level doesn't come into play in the immediate aftermath of a crisis because, again, you're focused on your national setting. But then you quickly realize, whether you're China, the United States, or Sweden, we need help and coordination more broadly. And here in Europe, we have that opportunity, and, and countries will coordinate with their fellow counterparts in Brussels, both other countries and the EU institutions, to help improve matters as the days go on and as more problems arise. As I say, you know, this pandemic is going to go on for a long time. There's going to be a lot of knock-on effects. Um, and a lot of those knock-on effects are in areas like um, trade, in keeping the economy moving, um, in mobility, you know, uh, allowing people to move around Europe. Those are all questions which certainly uh, individual states 
uh, don't have the power to, to rule over or can't handle on their own. So they're going to have to do it collectively. So you're right. Over time, they tend to go to Brussels and try to fix some of these additional problems. You're currently working on a research project about creeping crisis, uh, where crisis com cre comes creeping slowly, right. or you can say slow burning, um, right. and escalate into an acute crisis. Uh, what does the coronavirus tell you about that or the other way around? What can your research on creeping crisis tell us about how this is being managed? Right. It was kind of interesting to have a research project on creeping crisis right when a, a creeping crisis kind of emerged. When we started that project, we were looking at things like antimicrobial resistance. We were looking at things um, like even even big data, the accumulation of big data. We weren't necessarily, uh, climate change is another one. We weren't necessarily looking at pandemics per se, but you know, when you look back into how the coronavirus came to infect humans, when you look at the various vectors by which it expanded and traveled across borders, when you look at the strange patterns of political attention that are given to the coronavirus, where we sort of watched it, we knew it was coming, you know, and we weren't, we didn't really take action immediately. We waited, we thought it, we hoped, and we waited. It wouldn't hit us, but it did. A lot of the coronavirus cr case reflects what we call a creeping crisis, and it puts a lot of burden on governments because it's, it's so um, uh, ever-present in society. It's so all over the place, one could say, in, in all different parts of society that it puts enormous demands on governments. It puts enormous demands on international cooperation. It puts enormous demands on our ability to see the full picture of what's happening and to predict the, the long-term effects. So what we call a creeping crisis is an extraordinarily complicated kind of crisis of which the coronavirus seems to be one and is getting worse in that respect. We hope through our research here at the Institute that we can, we can highlight areas that governments should focus on in terms of the special challenges that creeping crises present to you know, a societal-wide response. But is it already possible to, to draw conclusions or to, um, you know, to make predictions or, uh, about how this will be politically handled from it's looking at it like a cre creeping crisis. It's a good question. I've, I'm very hesitant to draw conclusions at this point in time. I think there's a tendency for a lot of pundits and commentators to have a lot of opinions about things which they may know little or a lot about. Um, all crises are difficult by definition. Almost all crises are impossible to handle in a perfect manner. Um, the levels of uncertainty are enormous. The avalanche of information coming are intense. Uh, the effect of certain decisions are unknown. So no government in the world manages crises perfectly. And I'm certainly not going to be one who steps in and starts to criticize um, you know, how things have been done, either at national levels or the EU level. One thing that is almost always true after crises is that we go through a learning process. How could we have done it better next time? Now, those learning processes are never objective. They always, you know, people have their interest in how we learn and in what direction. But one thing that almost always comes clear is that these cross-border transboundary crises, um, you know, require coordination. And member states say that, but they don't always act on that. And then a crisis hits, and after the crisis fades away a bit, they go back and they realize, okay, we should do a little bit more. So after every crisis, there's a more and more cooperation, more and more legalized cooperation, meaning. Uh, formalized, I should say, cooperation in Brussels. And I think that's a pattern that I am willing to, to 
to predict that after this crisis there will be more activity in Brussels to find areas where coordination can really help save people's lives and to put more investments in that. We're going to come back to that in a, in a little bit, but I want to ask you about something you mentioned in the beginning, that um, the public expectations of what the EU should do mm. or hasn't done, um, what does the current like public debate uh, about European cooperation on this area, what does it tell you about the public expectations of what the EU does or should do? It's tough to say. I think in crisis situations, we're all in a little bit of shock. We're all uh, greatly concerned. And I think, again, countries are like people, and people want to place blame somewhere. They want to say, okay, what happened here? And are we doing the right thing? Why hasn't this happened? You know, of course, you have a, you have a press corps, and you have political parties, and you have pundits, you know, from think tanks and research institutes like us, too. It has to be admitted that want to be saying something and want to have an opinion. And, and it's very easy to, to blame different parts. But of course, expectations are often unrealistic. You know, the European Union coordinates member states and helps support them, but will never be responsible for the um, direct response to a crisis. Um, the f you know, nevertheless, we sort of expect that the there'd be some sort of magic response from the EU. Everything will be rationally organized and supplies will go where they need to go and Italy will behave and Germany will behave and Sweden will give its fair share and everything. But of course, those are unrealistic expectations, not only because the EU plays this limited role that we've discussed and national governments uh, are in charge, but also because national governments tend to think about themselves first before they think about their neighbors and the benefits that come with cooperation. That's just a fact of life. So to answer your question, I think expectations are, especially in the immediate aftermath of a crisis, are a little out of, out of sync with, with reality, but that's a natural, natural thing. Um, and about the, if we, if we try to focus this towards the future, uh, you said also before that, um, you know, the countries, member states, they close their borders. Uh, this is, this actually goes against what the EU is supposed to be all about. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that, uh, will this change how the European Union, you know, can exist? Mm -hmm. That's a, a really good question. Um, there's two ways to look at this. The, the common view right now is that, oh gosh, this just reveals that, you know, the, the European construction, the community of nations which has been put together is no match for a major crisis or it's no match for nationalist sentiment which wants to close borders and close ranks and, you know, raise the flag of that particular nation as opposed to the European Union. Um, and the European Union is only there to restrain the expression of national interests and national, you know, desires. Um, but there's another narrative actually taking shape now too, which is, you know, the, the European response to this problem has been much more adaptive and much more flexible than we've ever seen before in previous crises, which suggests that maybe the European Union is becoming a more mature political actor, it's becoming a more effective crisis manager. So for example, um, in previous crises, when member states threw up their borders, the EU cried, how can you do this? It's against the, the legal treaties which the EU has established. You know. Or if they broke um, 
rules about how much debt they can receive. You know, the Eurozone leader said, oh, how can you do this? We have a treaty about this too. But this time, European leaders have said, you know what, in this situation, perhaps we need to be a little more flexible. Perhaps we need to improvise a little bit more. We will let you close those borders, but we let's work together on creating what's called green lanes. This is the latest initiative where, which will allow essential products and services to cross borders even in the crisis conditions or in the Stability and Growth Pact. Okay, go ahead and break those rules for a little while. You've got to do what you've got to do uh, to manage this crisis. You've got to spend more money. Um, normally we wouldn't like that because it exceeds the, the, the debt, regu- debt limits, but in this case, let's just let it go. If you look at how national governments respond to crisis, they do the same thing. They throw the rule back out the window and say, whatever it takes, let's fix this problem. And now you see Brussels doing that. So it's no longer this very rigid rule-based system. It's becoming a much more kind of mature political actor in crises. So I'm, I'm going to be very keen to see if this narrative continues and whether it says something, as you suggest, m- you know, more broadly about the European project and its, its ability to survive this, this latest test. But there are actually um, um, evidence to suggest that the EU is, has been learning from previous crises and is adapting to this one faster. Yeah, and you yourself have been involved in some of that research where we looked at the fact that you know the EU has been trying. Uh, when I say EU, I mean the EU institutions have been trying to work with national capitals to improve their communication, for instance, between you know national health services to say, let's share more information, let's help each other out, let's, let's notify each other when things go wrong. And in the early days, as we discovered in our research, you and me and the others, it was that, well, sure, we'll sign up to these you know, early warning systems or these information sharing systems. Um, you know, we'll keep an eye on them. Over the years, they become more and more used, usually following different kinds of crises, because they do offer a very unique and efficient way to communicate amongst different member states, which would not otherwise exist without the EU. So the EU is learning. It's also proving its worth from one crisis to the next. And I think if you are... Well, if you, if you want to look at the EU in a positive light, you know, this would be a lot of evidence to suggest that things are going well on that front, at least. And do you think that there is also room for a further uh, integration on the civil protection area after this? Well, it's funny. Um, the day we record this podcast tomorrow will be a European Council meeting, heads of state and government, and they want to upgrade the civil protection cooperation even more. Um, they want to say, let's create a European crisis management center. I think, you know, I, that sounds more than it is. The, the, the commission, as I mentioned, already has this European response coordination center, which is more or less the same thing. But they want to show that they're doing some things, maybe rename it, reframe it, rebrand it, add a bit more competences and resources to it. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's taking place, and I think that civil protection cooperation will no doubt get a boost. It does ev- after every major crisis. Remember the forest fires in Sweden in 2018? You know, Sweden finally let down its resistance. I should point a few fingers here at Sweden, because Sweden resisted building up a common capacity for civil protection resources. Sweden finally relented and said, okay, now we get it. We see that we may not have enough forest fires, forest fire, forest fire (laughs) planes uh, during crises, and we need to bring them in from Italy. They realize how important that can be, and the more efficient that that process can be made, thanks to the civil protection mechanism, well, all the better. So Sweden has lowered its opposition to that. 
Um, and I think a lot of other member states in the pandemic will do the same. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll see a lot of growth in, in, in cooperation there. I'm going to uh, round this up now, but um, just to summarize, what I take from this is uh, the role that the EU has in supporting, not necessarily leading, but supporting and helping the member states and trying to find the ways to um, work on the secondary effects of uh, crises mm -hmm. and uh, help uh, not in the acute phase also, but the, the main role is maybe um, in, other, in other times. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Absolutely. And that the EU has actually learned from, uh, from past crises and become a more adaptive and flexible actor. Definitely. I think it's regarding expectations. We have to understand the EU is there to support member states. Member states are responsible for this. It's up to member states whether they want to use the EU. The EU is a tool to help coordination to improve public policy in all areas, including crises. So it's up to the member states and to how much they want to use the EU to improve things. Um, uh, and, but they are always responsible, the national governments, um, for the ground level response to crises that will continue. The question is, do we build up more kind of support or surge capacity or you know, secondary assistance for member states in the years ahead from the EU? Thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I look forward to uh, talking to you about this again and to follow up uh, how this fits into the Creeping Crisis uh, framework. Thank you so much Great. for coming. Looking forward to it. Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. Catch you later.